reading from chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 of Romans. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God." For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you, Lord, and to study your word, Lord. We ask that... We would have ears to hear your word, Lord, that we would learn of you, Lord, that we would be instructed perfectly in you, Lord, that you'd be here in our midst, Lord, and that the speaker would be minified and you would be magnified, Lord. We ask this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, uh, disclaimer, I'm going to be talking about the same scripture in Columbia this afternoon. So think of this as a preview of what will be longer and more uh, detailed this afternoon. Also, uh, ironically, after last week, we, we talked about uh, glorying in our infirmities, and I am now suffering from the allergies of the season. So, you know, in weakness, we are strong, and hopefully these allergies will serve to benefit you in some way. Um, so we're looking at chapter seven. We're going to just go through this verse by verse. Uh, But before we do, I'd like to give a little bit of context so that people know where we are in Scripture. This is the book of Romans. This is largely or often considered by theologians to be Paul's greatest theological work. It is a systematic approach to the doctrines of justification. If you were to only read one book in the Bible... uh, in approaching the doctrines of grace, this might be the book that you choose to read. It is short. It is worth reading. Martin Luther said that it would be worth reading every single day of your life. So the book of Romans is Paul's approach to the doctrine of justification. What is justification? Well, in the theological sense, when we talk about justification, we're talking about God's view of man in a legal sense. And when I say a legal sense... It means that it's the same way we would think of the law uh, sort of in the world, which is uh, when you're abiding by the law, then you're not a criminal and you deserve no punishment. But and so you're viewed by the justice system as being without criminality. So justification by God is very much the same. It's there is a law that we are to abide and justification is the process by which God deems you as legally without sin or legally 
uh, not, not a criminal, right? So now another way of looking at justification, I think this is also a good way of looking at it, is that justification is the process by which one is made straight. So if you ever use a word processor and you justify a line of text, it is spreading that line of text evenly across a line. It is making the line symmetrical and proportional and you know, in the, t- in the context of text, it actually doesn't make it more readable, but that is what it means to justify something, is to make it straight or to view it uh, in as if it is good. So, in the beginning of Romans, we, the chapters 1 through 3 are making a case for our own depravity, making a case for our own fallenness. It says... Well, I don't want to read too much here. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. What this is saying is that we all know God, but we act as if we don't. Right? So even the atheist who claims to not believe in God knows God but suppresses the truth in unrighteousness is a a way that other translations formulate this. Because of this, they know him not, and they glorify him not as God, nor were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to become wise, to be wise, they become fools, and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So this is the process by which we degenerate. First one, or chapter one also mentions a number of sins. It says that we're filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiting, hating God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, on and on. It says that we are worthy of death because of all this sin. Chapter 2 and 3, so chapter 1 is really talking about the world, but chapters 2 and 3 sort of turn the lens inward and say, but you also are not without sin, that we are all unprofitable servants. Chapter 4 discusses Abraham, and this is where we really get into the doctrine of justification, which is that Abraham was saved, but Abraham was prior to the law being delivered to Moses. So how could one be saved without a law to follow? The idea here is that Abraham was justified not by works, but by his faith in God. For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. So in believing God, it is counted unto him as righteousness. On the opposite end of that, you can look at Adam and Eve and you can ask, what was Adam and Eve's sin? It wasn't, it wasn't merely that they ate the fruit. It was that they didn't believe God when he said, you shall surely die if you eat this fruit. Chapters 5 and 6 are worth reading. They're very beautiful. Chapter 5 is about how we have peace with God. The sinner is at war with God. The believer is at peace with God. And meditate on that. Meditate what it means to not be at war with God. Because we are fallen mortal beings. And to be at war with God is not in our interest. (laughs) Chapter 6 goes on to say that 
it, it, this is the question of what is called antinomianism. And what, with that, that's a long word, and all it means, anti means against, nomianism means the law. And so antinomianists believe that we don't need to follow any moral law, that we are totally free to do whatever we want because God has become incarnate and died for our sins. This is a incredible theological error. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue to do evil so that the goodness of God's forgiveness might be magnified? What does Paul say here? God forbid the strongest possible refutation. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live no live any longer therein? This is a very important thing to understand. It is so clearly denounced in the Bible. And if you go to many other churches today, you will find a form of antinomianism that says that says you are not constrained by any moral law. You are fully you are. um, What they do is they turn liberty, which is the right to do what you ought to do into something called licentiousness, which is the license to do what you ought not to do. And this is a deep theological error. It is it is incredibly wicked and damaging and it is extremely common in uh, large mainstream churches today, some form of it. And so we ought to be very clear. Chapter six of Romans says, God forbid we believe such a thing. Then we come to chapter seven. Chapter seven is about the role of the law in justification. Now, when Paul is talking about the law in the Latin, the lex, He's talking about the law that was delivered to the Jews by Moses, but not merely, not merely the Ten Commandments. I want to turn to Exodus 20 so we can read the Ten Commandments. And we're also just going to touch on some distinctions in the law that are important. Because, again, we don't want to fall prey to antinomianism. So if you'll turn to Exodus 20, you can follow along. We'll read the Ten Commandments. Which are wonderful and good and ought to be followed. God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have have no other gods before me. Okay, thou shalt have no other gods before me. One thing that you can look at with the Ten Commandments that might help you memorize them is that the first five, the first... Yeah, the first five relate to God and our relationship with him. The last five are um, not mirrors, but they are parallel with the first five in that, for example, the, f- the first one says, I'm the Lord thy God, have no other gods before me. The fifth one says, honor thy mother and father. And so the parallel there is the way that we treat God ought to be projected into the way that we treat our parents. Okay? Are you following me? I'm the Lord the God, brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, that thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or in the earth beneath. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, or nor serve them, for I am the Lord thy God, and I am a jealous God. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. This one I think is worth dwelling on just for a moment because I think, uh, so the word vain means uh, like empty or substanceless or pointless. And we often, we often think of this as being when you, 
Uh, when someone will like exclaim, like, oh my God, right? But that's not, that is not uh, the extent of this commandment. One could take the Lord's name in vain by wearing the title of Christian without, without following the moral law while bearing a bad witness. There's, this law is so worthy of our meditation because it would be so easy to walk through your life bearing the title of Christian and giving a bad witness, being a bad follower of Christ. It says take the Lord's name in vain. It could also be translated as carry the Lord's name in vain. So when you go through your life while you're carrying the Lord's name, you're a part of the bride of the church and you shall not carry it in vain. It should not be without substance. It should not be pointless. It should not be empty. It should be filled. It should be fulfilling. Take not the Lord, uh, the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, which is, or anything. Thou shalt not covet. Uh, it's good to dwell on the 10th commandment as well. Thou shalt not covet, because if you read the rest of chapter 7, you'll find that it comes up again in Paul's life as a believer, or actually as a Jew. So it's good to think about that. Okay, so now we know what the law is. And there's the Ten Commandments are often referred to as the moral law. These are the moral constants of human life. They were true before we, they were articulated uh, to, to Moses on the tablets, and they're true after. They're true after the law has been fulfilled by Jesus. We ought to do these things. They are part of the moral law. There are two other kinds of law that the Jews were given. One is the ceremonial law, which are things like the Jubilee or the sacrificial system, the atonement, etc., etc. You're familiar with all this. And then there's the civil law, which are the laws around how to govern the Jewish state of Israel. Those are the two forms of law that are no longer applicable under the New Testament, under the New Covenant. We are not obliged to sacrifice animals for the sacrifice was completed in Christ. We're not obliged to uh, follow the Israeli system of government. Um, Although there are things to be learned from that form of law. There's a type of uh, theology called general equity theonomy, and that sounds very fancy, but all it means is that those laws that we learn in the Old Testament are reflective of uh, eternal principles that can be extrapolated into our current day. So, for example, it will say if a builder builds a house and the house falls on the people that paid for the house, then the builder should be liable. That liability would hold, should be applied in our modern law today. And so if you were here on Wednesday, we read out of Psalm 2 and it says that uh, the rulers of this world ought to be fearful of God and that they should govern. They can govern sort of while applying principles that are learned from the Old Testament. OK, so that's the law. And we've talked about the moral law, the ceremonial law and the civil law. 
And it says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. So now you know the law. How that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So he's saying that this ought to be something that you all know. That the law has dominion, has kingly rule over you as long as you live. This is a basic belief that we ought to hold. And then he builds on that basic belief by using what they call the marriage analogy. He says, for the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that law. So she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law. So the the analogy here is that the first marriage is the marriage to the law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law that the Jews were obliged to follow under the Old Testament covenant. The new marriage is our marriage in Christ as the body of the church. And so we... We are dead to that original covenant, and we are alive under the new law of Christ, the law of the Spirit. Are you following me? Okay. So the the marriage analogy, again, the first marriage is dead. We are now married in the new covenant. You also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. You become dead to the law by the body of Christ that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So the reason for this, the reason for this, the death of the original covenant and the life of the new marriage is that we would bring forth fruit unto God. Okay, so the marriage, the existence of the church, the bride has a purpose and the purpose is to bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, and this is a fascinating, I I don't have enough time to really dive into this, especially because it gets more into it later in this chapter, but by the motions of sin were by the law. So there's something about uh, the motions of sin, which occur by the law, did work in our members to bring fruit forth fruit unto death. So sinning brings forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in a newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We are delivered from the law. We are free from the bondage of the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, the civil law that was delivered to the Jews. And why did the law exist in the first place? This is all uh, later in the chapter. But the, the fact the the purpose of the law was to expose our fallenness, to, to demonstrate to the Jews that there is uh, no one who is without sin, that there is no one who is able to accommodate God's perfect standard. We are delivered from that law, being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And so we ought not to be dogmatically attached to any uh, old letter. We ought not be dogmatically attached to our own civil codes. We ought not look at our civil codes and say they are necessarily perfect and without uh, and, and, and should be uh, 
They shouldn't be followed without first looking at them through the lens of Scripture, without first looking at them through the lens of the Holy Spirit, which you walk in. David gave a great message about walking in the Holy Spirit uh, maybe a couple months ago. And this idea that when you're walking in the Holy Spirit, when you're living in Scripture, you'll be living in a newness of spirit, a newness of spirit that frees you from the letter of the law. And in this case, he's writing specifically to the Jews and the Gentiles who are in Rome, but it holds true today that the, the, the legalisms of the past are only valid insofar as they are conforming to the will of God, which we can know through the Holy Spirit that works in us uh, by means of the scripture that, that we read and we meditate on and the still small voice that we hear in our hearts uh, when we're walking in the spirit. I won't get into the rest of this chapter because there's so much here, but the next verse does say, what shall we say then is the law sin? God forbid. The law itself is not sin. We shouldn't look at it like it was a bad thing. It was something given to us that we might know us, our state, that we might know that we require what? Justification. That we require some sort of propitiation for our sins. And we got that propitiation for our sins in Christ, on the cross, through no works of our own, but just because God loves us, his chosen elect, that he loved each one of you personally so much that he would take nails in the hands of the perfect lamb and in the feet so that you could be viewed legally as without sin. And that is how God views us. God the Father sees us as perfect like Christ. Though we don't deserve it, though we live in a state of constant sin and and constant hatred of God, we are graced with belief. We are graced with the faith in Christ that saves us like Abraham. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word today, Lord. Thank you so much for the knowledge of the law, which brings to light our depravity, Lord. It brings to light our insufficiency, Lord. But we know, Lord, because we believe in Christ, your son, we know that we are saved from that state, Lord, that we are made perfect in him, Lord, that you see us as perfect because of his perfect work, Lord, that he would become lower than angels and become man and take on all of our sin on the cross, Lord, to be propitiation for our sins, Lord. We, we want to dwell on this. We want to meditate on this, Lord. We ask that you would keep it on our minds, Lord, as we go throughout the week, Lord, and that we would understand the depth of our depravity and the heights of your grace, Lord. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Psalm chapter 27 and then uh, chapter 84, they they complement each other. Uh, David uh, writing Psalm 27 uh, after uh, having great uh, seasons of despondency and, and fear. In Psalm 27, we are given some insight to what... David's greatest desire is his greatest desire. And in seeing what David's greatest desire is, it should give us some direction on what our greatest desire ought to be. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? There's any uh, anyone that is experiencing a 
a measure of fear today. Maybe you can be encouraged by David's experience here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So David begins to tell us that even through his experiences of despair and despondency, that it's the Lord that holds him up. It's the Lord that's always been with him. And he says that he'll not be afraid of anyone else or anything because of the Lord in his life. And he realizes that the Lord is the strength of his life. He then breaks it down just a little bit more. And he says, when the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes came upon me to eat upon my flesh, they stumbled and fell. He basically says that the Lord who's in charge puts some roadblocks in in the way of the enemies along. And we may look at that in our own life, that if there's those that desire to do you harm, that God who is in charge may put some roadblocks in their path. He says, when the enemies, mine enemies and my foes came upon me to eat my flesh, it says they stumbled and fell because God was in the matter and God was taking care of David. David realized that he was spared through the mercy and grace of Almighty God. I've heard it said before that that uh, George Washington Uh, That there were lots of uh, bullets that were fired at George Washington, but none of those bullets would penetrate George Washington. And he was spared from the enemies that were around. And that's what David's saying right here. He says, though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though he says, even war should rise against me. He says, in this one thing, I will be confident. He says, I know that in every stage and area of my life, that God is with me, that God is for me, that God is protecting me, that he has a hedge of protection about me and he'll see me through no matter what phase or experience that I have in life. He says this, I'm confident. And then he sort of changes the thought right here just a little bit. He says, as a result of seeing God in my life, as a result of knowing that God is with me and that God cares and that God holds me up. He says, there's something that I desire in life. Now, Elder Compton used to have a saying, he says, God gives us the desire and God gives us the ability. And so the desire that God has right here, that David has right here, came from God. David said, there's one thing in life that I desire. It wasn't that David desired to be king. It wasn't that David desired to be wealthy, to have great riches. It wasn't that David desired to have a great name. It wasn't that David desired to have great health or great security or things that we might think about in our life. What is the greatest desire that we have in our life? It should be in line with what David's greatest desire was. And sometimes when we are away from having the experience, we appreciate it even all the more. And David had been refrained from being able to experience worship with the people of God in the house of God. And David said, there's one thing that's above everything else that's a desire in my life. 
He said, there's one thing that I have desired, and that is that I may, he said, is that I desire of the Lord, that I may seek after, and that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And that while I'm dwelling in the house of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That verse, verse 4, is just sort of tucked into the middle of this psalm. David is talking about his experience in life, the, the, the tough road that he has in life, the difficulties in life. And then all of a sudden, he in verse 4, he, he plugs right here. He says, but my greatest desire is to be with the Lord, to be with the Lord's people, to be in the house of the Lord, to dwell in the temple of the Lord. He said, that's my greatest desire in life. Psalm 84 I believe it's Psalm 84 says it like this. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. This next verse is sort of interesting right here. He says, yea, the sparrow hath found an house. And the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars. He's even, he's even highlighting that, that the sparrow who takes care of, of, of the little birds, he says, of her young, that it's found, it's found a nest, it's found a house uh, that, that they can abide in. And, and David is uh, desiring, he says, yea, the sparrow hath found an house, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King, my God. He's talking about dwelling in the very presence of the people of God, in the house of God. And verse 4 even uh, uh, defines it more. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. It's one thing to know about God's house. It's another thing to dwell in God's house. Uh, I uh, had the blessing of of uh, meeting these two uh, these two sisters at the church in uh, uh, Alexandria, Virginia. There was a, a Washington Primitive Baptist Church, and I had the blessing of meeting these two sisters there and meeting their aunt, who was almost a hundred years old. And they told us that they had grown up in the church and they had enjoyed the church and at different seasons in their life they had attended church, but they really never had engaged themselves with the church. And and I thought, what a what what how sad it is that they've lived their whole life and missed out on some of the blessings that are in the church of Almighty God. Uh, was a blessing to worship with them. But they said, we go occasionally. We, we attend uh, once in a while. We believe that it's the church. We believe that it's the truth. But it really did not find a lodging place in their life. And they, they shared that. And I thought, how sad that is. Because what David is saying right here is there's something really special about the house of God. To be able to meet with the saints of God, to worship with the saints of God, to dwell and to experience the joys and the sorrows, the times of difficulty, the times of rejoicing, that you get to share it with your brothers and sisters. What a blessing that it is. And that's what David's saying right here. It, it goes on and he highlights it a little bit more. Blessed are they that dwell in the house of the Lord, not just know about it, not just appreciate it from a distance. But it says that they dwell in the house of God and they will still be there praising God. 
praising thee. David goes down and he says a little bit more. He says, for a day in thy courts, in the dwelling place of God, in the place where God has chosen to dwell, to manifest his presence, to manifest his glory. He says, for one day, a day in the courts with the people of God, with God dwelling there. He says that for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. He says, as far as the, the number of days, he said, I would rather have one day in the house of God with the people of God. He says, then a thousand days. He said, in fact, he says, David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. I'd rather just be there to open the door for folks. Just to be able to see their faces, just to be able to fellowship with them, to communicate with them. He said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of Almighty God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. David said, all of the enticements of the world that are out there, all of the pleasures, all of the accomplishments, all that this world has to offer. He said, if you give me the choice of of having the world and everything that it offers or being in the house of God and just simply being a doorkeeper in the house of God, he said, I'd much rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to have all the pleasures of this world. He said, I'd rather have one day in that course than a thousand beside. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield and the Lord will give grace and glory. This is so good right here. For the Lord is the Lord God is a sun and a shield and the Lord will give grace and glory. This is so good and no good thing. Will he withhold from them that walk uprightly? O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusteth in thee. Brother Danny emphasized in Romans about belief. And belief is trusting in the Lord. And David says that if you trust in the Lord, you're going to be a blessed individual. Now, we realize and we know that we have the blessing of believing in God, of having faith in God, of trusting in God because of what he does in our heart. The reason that you believe in God, the reason that you have faith in God, the reason that you trust in God is because he's done a work of grace within your heart. When he touched you with his spirit, when he gives you his spirit, the spirit causes the inward man or the spiritual man to come alive. Until you have that spiritual life, you are totally and completely dead in trespasses and sins. But when God quickens you or gives you spiritual life, then as a result of that spiritual life, you have belief, you have faith, you have trust in God. All of those things uh, are benefits of being a child of God, are blessings of being a child of God. Sometimes... In the world, we get things a little bit backwards. We get the cart before the horse. We get to thinking that it takes the belief or the faith or the trust in God, that it takes those things to become a child of God. But when it's actually just the opposite, the belief and the faith and the trust comes as a result of being a child of God. 
I appreciated Brother Ben's message last week. Enjoyed hearing it. Um, and Brother Tom passed it along, and it was, it was real good. And he, he mentioned, he said, you can't go out and get faith. God has to give it to you. That's exactly right. Elder Afton Richards, my pastor, used to share a story. His son was playing football. And as they were practicing for um, a, a big uh, game that they were coming up against a, a team that was um, a favored above them, he said that the coach told uh, the players that night before the game the next day, he said, you better have faith that we're going to win this game. And if you don't have faith, you better go out and get some. Well, if you don't have faith, you can't go out and get it. God has to give it to you. But if you have faith, God has given it to you. And that is the evidence that you are a child of God. If you have faith, if you have belief, faith, trust, that's the evidence that you are a child of the king. So back to Psalm 27. David says there's one thing that I desire above everything else. And that is to be able to be with the people of God in the house of God to dwell with the people of God. He said, that's my greatest desire. He said, I'd rather have one day like that than a thousand days. He said, I'd rather be in the house of God and just serve as a doorkeeper just to be able to be there in the presence of almighty God with the people of almighty God. Then he comes down and he sort of goes back into this same mode that he's talking about, about dealing with challenges in his life and just going to read through the remaining verses here the last verses are really really good they're all good but we'll specifically get to the verse 13 and 14 for in time of trouble hmm, all of God's children have trouble at different stages in their life when we're old we face the challenges of old age and it's described as being in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 as referred to as the evil days. Because there's not a whole lot of pleasantries in old age. He said in the time of trouble, parents face troubling times. Children face troubling times. He says in times of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. There's a shelter, a place of safety, a place we can run to, a place that if we can't get to, he comes to us. He said he'll hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. Here, most of the time when we're experiencing trouble, we think of ourselves as being pretty low. Pretty despondent in some degree of despair. But he says right here that not only will he hide us in the secret of the tabernacle, he'll hide us in his pavilion. But he says when we're down and when we're low and when we're despondent, he says he's going to he's going to pick us up. We, we can't pick ourselves up, but it says he picks us up. He will set us upon. Not some sand that when the waves of trouble come that will wash away from us. But he's going to pick us up and he's going to put us up on a rock. That's something that's not going to be moved. And the only rock that I can think of that is unmovable in our life. It's not the government. 
It's not our accomplishments. It's not even this wonderful United States of America. The only rock that we have as a child of God that's unmovable is Jesus Christ. And when we can't even pick ourselves up, he picks us up and he sets our feet upon a solid rock. He's got a pavilion over us. He's got a tabernacle over us and he's got a rock under us to hold us up. I like that. I don't know about you, but it means a lot to me. I, I hope it does. And now shall mine head be. This is something. And David says, and now shall mine head be lifted above mine enemies round about me. Therefore, I will offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing. I will sing praises unto the Lord. Boy, aren't you glad we can have the blessing of singing? I tell you what, these songs minister to me. Uh, we were just just talking, Brother Justice, Sister Tracy, about uh, the singing the other day at Old Brick Church. And, and, and Brother Kilby even said, it's just the best singing I ever heard. He said, I could sing. I, he said, who was singing that, that wonderful tenor? He said, it was ministering to me. And he says, even I heard that. And it was such a blessing. He says, the best I ever heard. Aren't you glad that, that God blesses us to blend our voices together to sing the hymns of praise? David said, I'm going to go to the house of the Lord and I'm going to sing praises. I'm going to sing to the top of my voice to praise my God. He said, I've got something to sing about. He says, hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me. And he says, and answer me. And when thou saidest, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. God is Delighted when his people are drawn to praise his name, to seek his face and honor him and praise his name. He said, hide not thou, hide not thy face far from me and put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O Lord God of my salvation. You know, I think it's 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 wonderful to know that no matter what David's challenges were and his trials were he knew where his strength came from he knew the Lord was holding him up and the Lord would strengthen him he had in the past and he believed that he would in the future and then he said something here that's I think that it's uh, it's to be uh, considered in uh, let me see if I can say it when my father and my mother forsake me then the Lord will take me up. I don't believe that he's specifically saying right here that the father and mother were forsaking him per se. But I believe that he's saying that when, almost in a general sense, when anybody, our father and our mother are our closest relation and, and, and the least likely to ever forsake us. Your mom is going to stick with you all the way. Your dad's going to stick with you all the way. But I believe what he's saying right here is that if you're forsaken by anybody, your relations, your friends, your co-workers, if anyone, he says, when my father, and my mother forsake me, he says, I've got some good news. He said, even if others forsake me, even to the point of a father and mother, he says, I've got some good news. The Lord is going to hold me up. The Lord's going to be with me. The Apostle Paul said that all men forsook him. But he said, notwithstanding, the Lord stood by him and the Lord held him up. 
Another place David said that all had forsaken him, but God held him up. Then David says, teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path. I I like that David said, "Just, just make it real simple. Just show me the path that you'd have me to go. Don't make it complicated. Just just lead me in a plain path, Lord. Deliver me not over to mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I tell you, we're in a day and a time where a lot of times there's not a whole lot of truth to witnesses. If somebody says it enough, it becomes reality in their mind. And whether it's really true or not, if, if it's in their mind, it's almost a reality, whether there's any truth to it or not. And he says right here, he says, Lord, there's false witnesses out there that would desire to destroy me. But he said, Lord, would you even spare me against the false witnesses? David said, I would have given up. I would have pitched in the towel. He said, I would have fainted unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David said, it's the Lord that strengthened me, held me up. And then he says, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he'll strengthen your heart. David said, wait, I say, on the Lord. I think that's good for all of us too. when we try to fix things and realize that sometimes when we try to fix them, we just make them worse. And sometimes we just simply need to let the Lord work it out. Wait on the Lord. Don't try to push it. Don't try to force it. Don't try to make it happen. But you take it and give it to the Lord. And it's amazing how that God can work it out. I remember one time that I, it seemed like had a, a lot of seemingly large challenges in my life and really narrowed down there. There weren't that many. But I remember one day that, that I took a notepad and I just simply wrote them down. And I could not see from my perspective how that I could overcome or deal with or handle the issues. And I remember writing them down on a piece of paper and praying that God would would show a way or make a way or give me the strength. And I remember going back about a month later and looking at that list and I could put check marks by the ones that God had worked it out. And he worked it out in ways that I wouldn't have even imagined. That's why he says, don't try to force it. Don't try to make it happen. Don't try to run before the Lord. But you wait on the Lord. And while you're waiting on the Lord, you be of good courage. And the Lord will see you through. He says it twice. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He'll strengthen you. He'll strengthen your heart. And he says, and by the way, wait on the Lord. David's greatest desire was to be with the people of God in the house of the Lord. And he said that's his greatest desire above everything else in life. It should be our greatest desire as well. God bless you.